You weren't expecting that. That's better. Welcome. Good morning. How are you? So, as always, I want to thank the crew back there. Um, Tim, Olivia, William, making sure that um, you can see these. We have brand new as of last week, I think, right, William? These are brand new as of last week. Brand new TVs, bigger TVs, bigger monitors and new stands to put them on. Thank you for that. So, um, you know, with, with one or two exceptions, um, Holly Hudley has co-taught co with me for the past 15 months. And uh, she didn't last week and this week because they've been dealing with a um, breakout case. Is that what? Breakthrough case of COVID in their house, even though both she and Josh were vaccinated. So um, she texted me, called me this morning as we were making our way to church. She's just taken another test today and she's negative. So she'll be back next Sunday. I miss her being here. So yeah, it's um, it's hard to do this by yourself. So, as always, we dedicate this time today to um, growing in our understanding of who we truly are, growing in our understanding of who our neighbor is, learning to love our neighbor as if they were us because they are, and also deepening our understanding and skill in relating to sacred mystery that not only contains all that is, but is an integral part of all who are and uh, the sacred mystery. So no matter who you are, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. We're going now to step into the story that we know as the parable of the prodigal son. Last week I said that likely a better title for this parable is the story of the compassionate father and his two lost sons. And I also spoke with you last week about the roles of mythos and logos. Um, in the ancient world in which this story was formulated and told, the other parables that we did as well, and the Gospel of John that we're getting ready to move into, I'm going to say more about that next, next Sunday and some resources that you might want to draw on as we get prepared to do this deep dive. But... At the risk of being overly repetitive, I want to remind you of the definition of mythos and logos, these two modes of acquiring knowledge and wisdom, and they're not the same. The primary thing to understand about mythos is that it was primary and that it was concerned with meaning. It is deeply rooted in the unconscious and the collective unconscious and it requires rituals to keep alive. Those three things are very important to know about mythos. And that's the context in which the story was created and told. And it is not the context in which we live. It's, we're very far away from this. So logos was the rational, pragmatic, scientific thought that allowed people to function in the world. 
we would call this ego functioning. Uh, it's what allowed you to drive here today and to know right from left and up from down and all that sort of thing. Um, I'm reminding you of this because we are in a culture where we have elevated Logos to such an esteemed place that it not only causes us individually and collectively to dismiss mythos, but actually to demean it. So elevating Logos to the level we have in our culture has hurt us in two significant ways. For one thing, it has made people skeptical about spiritual reality and religious practice. And for another, it has led us to be preoccupied with factuality. Modern Western culture is the only culture in human history that has identified truth with factuality. We are fact fundamentalist. And as a matter of fact, we now live in a culture where people make up their own facts and where falsehood is confused with the truth. And by the way, both liberals and conservatives can be fact fundamentalist. So when Jesus told his stories, no one in the audience who heard them elbowed the person next to them and said, hey, you're just making this up, you know. This is just a story. They knew it was not factually true, but that it conveyed a truth beyond fact. And I said today we live in a culture where people make stuff up and claim it is factually true. So we in the West have created this monster. The monster is figuring things out. And in math, chemistry, engineering, history, psychology, sociology, and a ton of other places, we've been able to do this. And by mastering data, um, information, and facts, we have created the illusion that we can get reality by the tail. There is a realm of reality that we can't get to that way. And that dimension of reality can be known only by faith. And that's very hard for us to hear. However, that's what the parables of Jesus are all about. They're about faith. And faith and factuality have gotten mixed up in our time. Faith isn't a body of material to be believed. Faith is a path to walk. It is a way to see that leads to freedom and to love. So we're going to step into a story that is told by a Jewish mystic. I think it is very difficult for us to hear this story as it was first received by a Jewish audience. But just keep in mind this sweet little Sunday school story that we learned in Vacation Bible School made people mad enough to kill. By the way, as we go along, I'm going to be mixing in bits of information to contribute to religious literacy and hopefully to contribute some insights to our spiritual wisdom and understanding. So here we go. And we're going to do this for a few Sundays and then to the Gospel of John. So a certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to the father, Father, give me the portion of your substance that falls to my share and he divided among them his life. There are a lot of two-son stories in the Bible, both in the Hebrew Scripture and in the Christian Testament. 
beginning with the Cain and Abel story in, in Genesis. Jesus had another parable that contained two sons. You remember that? One son said to his father that he would not do his father's will, but then went off and did it. And another son said, I, won't do you, I will do your will, and then went off and didn't do it. Two sons appear in lots of stories. So the father in this story is obviously very wealthy, and that's going to become apparent later. And the fact that a son might sell off his inheritance when he got it after the father's death was not uncommon in that time. Uh, Palestine was a place of little opportunity, and as I indicated last week, as Jewish law had it, the father behaved in a very reckless, foolish way by giving away this inheritance. There was a written law that said a father was not to transfer his property to his children in his lifetime. Now remember how important the Jewish leaders felt it was to keep the law and how often Jesus flaunted the laws of his time. Further, to do what this father did was giving up his honor. The whole society functioned on the shame and honor system. So the father was giving up his honor in this story and making matters even worse. In a belonging system where the father was central, the son has in effect pronounced the father to be dead. Life and death is a major theme in this particular parable. So the division of the property at this time kills the father. And after many days, let's see that goes over, gathering together everything, the younger son departed into a far country, and there he squandered his substance in wild living. So he didn't leave immediately, and this delay, according to the scholars, establishes him as the central character in this story, and he immediately falls into tragedy. By taking his property with him, he has refused to maintain his father as he was required by law to do. So his disposal of the family inheritance jeopardizes the family. Now this is a real test for those who first heard this story. We've heard it so often, we know where it's going. But the people who first heard this story expected this rascal to make good with the money because that's what happens in all the other stories, two sons or otherwise. Those folks had heard these stories, like the parable of the talents that Jesus told. You make good with what you're, you're given, or you're in big trouble. Now, we have been conditioned also to think that this younger son's while living was something sexual, petty sins of the flesh. That's our projection. We live in a very sexualized, eroticized culture. When uh, I was in the psychology part of my training, one option was to learn about administering the Orshak test. It's commonly called the Ingblot test. And um, though I did learn to uh, give and interpret a couple of projective tests, um, I did not learn the Rorschach but a story that made the rounds back in graduate school was that there was a man who was being given the test by a seasoned professional, and the psychologist showed him the first in the series of ink blots and asked the man, what do you see? And the man said, well, that's two people having sex. So he was shown the next ink blot test and said, 
what do you see? And he said, well, that's what's known as a menage a trois. That's three people having sex. And he was shown the next one, and the psychologist said, what do you see here? And he said, well, that's a group sex orgy. And on and on it went like this until the psychologist finally threw his hands up in the air and said, that's it. You're nothing but a sex pervert. And the man said, me? You're the one with the dirty pictures. But it's what the elder brother assumes, too, and, and he will say so later. But actually, the Greek phrase that is translated while living actually means he lived a life that would destroy a person. And whatever it was, as far as the hearers of the story are concerned, this young man has failed the test. When he had spent everything, there happened a great famine throughout that country. And that one began to fall short. By the way, this translation belongs to Brandon Scott. It's not one that you will find um, someplace else. And going, he attached himself to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. And he longs to feed his belly from the carob beans which the pigs were eating, and no one gave them to him. So what we have here is a picture of deep degradation and desperation. One of the things most feared in that time by all people, whether you were rich or poor alike, was a famine. And if, like most people, you were not in the rich category, you were always just a meal or two away from starvation. That's why the first petition in the Lord's Prayer is, give us this day our daily bread. So this part of the story is going to get the hearer's sympathy. Though the son was responsible for his circumstance, he was not responsible for this particular downturn of events. He tries his best to take care of himself, and in the process he is completely breaking his ties with his family by joining himself to a foreigner. The bit about feeding the pigs would, of course, been an abhorrent activity for a Jew. And there are many, many other ways to describe the desperation other than hunger. So why is the focus on food? Well, that's going to become apparent later on in the fatted calf. Remember, compassion and celebration is what the story is about. And food is also associated with the mother who is absent from this story, the, the maternal. At any rate, his wanting to eat the pig's food makes him like an animal. He abandons even his humanity. His degradation is complete. He is without money. He is without food. He's in a foreign land. He's without his family. He is without humanity. He is, in the Jewish mind at that time, dead. So those who first heard this story expect this young man or someone to restore him or else the story, unlike all the other two son stories, is going to end in tragedy. Coming to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hands abound in bread, but I in famine here perish. Rising up, I will go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned to heaven and before you. No longer am I worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your hired hands. And rising up, he came to his father. Now, that's where we're going to stop for today. No, you can't go home yet. Uh, it's going to stop going through the text 
at this particular part. Ten years ago in here, I taught a brief series on this parable and on the Nowen book and about Rembrandt's painting, The Return of the Prodigal Son. And as I said, I get to see this painting multiple times a day because it's at the head of the stairs of our two-story house, and every time I go up the stairs, I get to see it. And to me, this painting has become an icon into what I first heard Ilya Delio describe as her understanding of God. God is expanding, evolving, entangled, and creative. And in exploring this parable, even this small part of it that I've gone through today, we could go through, we, we could go in so many different directions. What I want to say first is that this parable is not about the fact that you need to feel bad and guilty and ashamed, confess your sins and come to Jesus, accept him as your personal savior, and thus have an evacuation plan from this world to the next. That's not what this parable is about. That kind of thinking would be absolutely foreign to the man who told the story. This parable is primarily about radical inclusion and celebration. It's about people dying to one form of life and entering into a new form of living. Now, since doing that series on this parable and the painting some 10 years ago now, my mind has changed in so many ways and about so many things regarding Jesus and his teaching. One of the things that I have become convinced of is that from the very beginning, Jesus was the beneficiary of Torah-inspired hospitality and inclusivity from the very beginning. Now, because we have not been taught how to read the Bible as parable and metaphor, even the most progressive of us have, tend to fall into a rather factual approach regarding the biblical text that makes it kind of impossible for us to hear the stories and not think that they're factually true. So take the birth stories of Jesus. Everybody knows there was no room for Jesus in the end, so he was born in a stable, right? But now, because of advances in archaeology and biblical studies, we are aware that the cultural context of the time, in that cultural context, Joseph's family home would have been the first option for Mary to give birth. It may have been a crowded household with little space, so maybe they laid the baby elsewhere in the house, perhaps in an animal feeding trough. But the fact remains, based on what we now know, that Jesus' life began with this radical inclusion that marks the Jewish mindset. Joseph's relatives made a place for Jesus in the heart of the household. So I want to say it again. From the very beginning... Jesus was the beneficiary of Torah-inspired hospitality and inclusivity. And this is one of the primary meetings of this particular parable. Among the first guests who came through the door were shepherds. Shepherds were social and religious outcasts. They were ritually suspect and socially disreputable. So here the notion of inclusivity is categorically declared. 
Dermud Amuraku, who is the Jewish biblical scholar and spiritual teacher that you've heard me mention a number of times, he has a number of great books. He has a book titled Inclusivity, from which I'm drawing some of this. And Amuraku says, quote, the one who was welcomed into the world with the warmth and hospitality of his Jewish home would devote his public life to the establishment of that same inclusivity. But he did so. This is my line, not Amuraku's. He did so with teachings that few, even in his own Jewish culture, could accept. So over the past years, I have become more and more convinced that Christianity stands or fails on its fidelity to the outsider. Now, Jesus clearly didn't measure up to many of the messianic expectations of his time. He didn't fit the divine triumphalism of his time. He didn't fit the kingly image of, of uh, the hopes that people had. He was born out of wedlock. He appears to be a rebellious young adult, leaving home to join himself to John the Baptist. Very early in his life, he chose not to marry, something that marked him as a traitor to his culture and an aberration to his religion. His teachings threw many people into confusion, like his parables. He constantly, constantly violated Jewish laws. And eventually, the system could no longer tolerate him, so they got rid of him in a brutal death. But this did not end his maverick status. He rebounded, convincing women who were among his first disciples that he was more radically alive in death than during his earthly existence. So in its early days, the Jesus movement opted for the outsider, welcoming not only women, but also Gentiles, which is a code word for those who were not Jewish chosen people. And though the early movement lost this or had it co-opted when Rome made the movement the official religion of the Roman Empire, there remained a maverick element who fled to the desert places where they declared unambiguously their allegiance to the outsider. And that's why we begin every ordinary life class with no matter who you are, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, you're welcome here. This class is for those who are attracted to the teachings of Jesus, but may be put off by the power games played in his name. And from the very beginning, I have hoped that ordinary life could be for and about ordinary people because of the message given by society if they feel they don't fit in. Now, I don't know about you, but I want to embrace and embody an identity that is not reduced to any one tribal identity or any one religion. So go back to why, according to the writer of Luke, where this parable is to be found, Jesus told this story in the first place. He had been accused of hanging out with the wrong sort of people. What else should a movement founded on his name and his teaching be about than hanging out with the wrong sort of people? 
Now, as I said, we, we could and should maybe go on for a long time about this matter of inclusivity. We could then spend weeks on this business of leaving home. You know, according to the Hebraic story, the beginning of the monotheistic religion was in Abraham's hearing a voice of God saying, get up and leave home and go for a place that I will show you. Abraham had no idea where he was going. Calling him to leave home. Now, from a psychological perspective, I can tell you for sure that a person who has never left home has never grown up. The importance of acquiring and expressing an adult faith can be gleaned and emphasized from this story. Both of these young men are encouraged to grow up. Now, those of you who have children know of those times when they were maybe just on the cusp of adolescence, rebelling against you and your authority, and when they said gentle things like, I hate you. <laughs> when I grow up, I'm never going to treat my children like you treat me, or something like that. If, if your children said that to you, very likely you said that to your parents. When uh, my daughter was five or six, she hated English peas. And I made a bargain with her that when we had English peas, she had to eat one pea for every year that she was old. And she didn't like that either. She said that was a dumb, stupid rule, unfair as it could be. Years later, I saw her feeding her firstborn English peas. <laughs> Guess what? Oh, that was so delightful. <laughs> and yes, I did tell her. I reminded her. I got the eye roll. <laughs> Leaving home is hard. Being responsible for yourself is hard. Your far country may not have been like the one in the parable, but so far I have yet to meet anybody who left home who didn't fall at some point flat on their face or some other part of their anatomy and have to figure out, okay, what's next? How am I going to do this? As a counselor and spiritual director, the leaving home I want to encourage people to be aware of is how both deliberately and unconsciously we fall away from what Thomas Merton referred to as the true self. This far country, this is the far country in which we must be willing to find ourselves if we ever hope to move in the direction of seeing as we are seen. Now, when you get the text of this in the email on Tuesday, you will see how much of that last paragraph I put in quotation marks. Because you can't communicate in language what I'm trying to say, but we keep trying to put it in language anyway. It's conveyed through art and poetry and that, that sort of thing. There is a, um, on the resource section on the homepage of Ordinary Life, there is a chapter in a book, <clears throat> from a book uh, called The Spiritual Dimension of the Enneagram called The Fall. And it's the best description of how we fall away from our true identity that I've read. It's not an easy read, 
but I encourage you to go there and read it, print it out, mark it up, and read it because it will show you the places where, um, in Buddhist language, they talk about the hungry ghost. We go about trying to fill up the empty places um, because caused by our falling away. Now, I have spent the last several weeks focusing on the various characters who are presented in this story. When Holly comes back, she's going to tell you about some that are not in the story but are implied in this story. And as I have reflected on the son who is presented to us at the beginning of the tale as this rebellious, arrogant character, I kept thinking about the lyrics of a song from the 60s. Now, my hunch is, looking out the demographic of this crowd, <laughs> that most of you know the song. It was written by Paul Anka. It was made popular by Frank Sinatra. Actually, uh, Paul Anka wrote this song for Frank Sinatra. Elvis also sang it. Some other people sang it. But this is the guy who made it popular. This song was... Um, Stayed on the top 40 list for 72 weeks. And for those of you who are not in the over 50 demographic, I will show you the media in which this song came to us. <laughs> A 45 RPM record. You remember those? Oh. And now the end is near. And so I face the final curtain. My friend, I'll make it clear. I'll state my case of which I'm certain. I lived a life that's full. I've traveled each and every highway and more, much more than that. I did it my way. It goes on. I did not know there was a line in this song that fit this parable so perfectly. For what is a man? What is he got? If not himself, then he has not. Not to say the things he truly feels and not the words of someone who kneels. The record shows I took all the blows and did it my way. And not the words of someone who kneels. It's a song of self-congratulation. It's a song of isolation. It's a poem of praise for extreme individualism. It is not about inclusivity. It's a sentiment that neither Jesus nor his followers would have understood. And it's certainly not something that he would have embraced. This song is a representation of what this country raises to the level of highest virtue, rugged individualism. That's the, the phrase that I first heard when I got involved in the civil rights movement in Tennessee in the 50s and was talking to the generation above me about racial justice, um, the phrase I heard more than any other was something like, well, son, people just got to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. And the people who made such statements weren't aware that the people in question didn't have any boots on their feet to pull up. And besides, nobody anywhere got anywhere just by their own merits. Now, I am aware that the way we're treating this parable, breaking it down into disparate parts, 
is not in line with the original intent. It was meant to be heard at one whole piece. I know that. But that being said, one of my goals is to free Jesus and his teachings from the limiting worldview in which he has been captured for centuries now. Jesus and his teachings have been tied to a cosmology that is out of date and to an anthropology that is no longer credible. What frees us when it comes to Jesus <clears throat> is not his death, it's his life, it's his teachings. Every day now we're seeing evidence of the growing number of people in this country who are so angry that they're willing to take that anger out and smear it on anything or anyone. It is as if we are almost trained to see other people as the problem. Trained and taught to find ways and people onto which to train our negative energy. It never seems to occur to us that we are the negative energy. At any rate, today we see absolute and unashamed racism, classism, sexism at the highest levels of our government. Stories come to me every single day. I mean this, every single day of what's going on in the name of Christianity. A religion being created out of the images, language, and beliefs about the world that though these things are rejected by most educated people, are growing in power and appeal. They're not decreasing. Every theory, both psychological and faith development that I know anything about, indicates that moving from one level to another, we're going to have questions, we're going to have doubts, and we're going to have discomfort. So doubts and or discomfort should not hold us back. It was the doubts and discomforts he experienced that enabled this first lost son in the parable to come to himself. For today, and we'll look at other facets of this gem of a story going forward, but for today, let's say that this part of the parable of the compassionate father and his two lost sons is about being on the path of continuing to grow into an increasing adult faith that is marked by radical compassion and by radical inclusivity. Now we can keep reminding ourselves of some of the things we know about the teachings of Jesus. He didn't teach a way to get to heaven. He was not trying to start a movement that condemned and excluded people. His teachings are a set of descriptions of a free, loving life right here, right now. And when we can practice the matters he taught, identifying with the poor, making peace, mourning with those who suffer so, that is, when we are manifesting the empowering community of compassion and inclusion within ourselves and among us, we're on the right path. And if we don't believe these things, if we don't really believe in nonviolence and the power of love, rather than putting our trust in violence and the love of power, I don't think we have anything to offer to the world. Jesus was not executing <clears throat> for teaching that we should be nice and take turns. He was offering a new world order. 
And if we use his teachings for anything else, we're likely doing more harm than good. In our culture, there is little or no spiritual discernment, little self-knowledge, virtually no self-patience. Look at the painting. It's an icon. What you see here is royalty embracing poverty, filth being embraced by cleanliness. It reminds me of the reporter who followed Mother Teresa around for a few days as he was writing a, a feature story on her. And at the end of a couple of days, he said to her, I wouldn't do what you do for a million dollars. And she said, I wouldn't either. So the question is, what calls us to wake up? What calls us to live with love and compassion, to live with wisdom and skill, and to see all of life as the arena to experience union with the divine? Okay, get ready. <clears throat> Here it comes. The one thing my years of doing this work has convinced me of is that we will not stay connected to the arenas of peace, love, joy, patience, and humility without a daily spiritual practice. You ain't going to get it without that. Carl Jung said, if you don't tell the world what you believe, it will tell you. Now, there are divides in the world today because there are divisions in people, in us. So pay attention to your own faith. Does it complete you? Does our faith give us something, not simply to offer to the world, but something that the world would find attractive? One of the very first things I heard Richard Rohr teach was religion is always, in one sense or another, about making one out of two. Cheap religion is invariably about maintaining the two and keeping them separate and apart. Say that again. Religion is always about making one out of two. Wholeness is not oneness. Wholeness is harmony. Wholeness is not singing with one voice in any great piece of music that moves your soul or your feet. There's not just one melody line. There's not just one part. It's all this harmony that goes in it. This coming to ourselves and stepping into the arena of compassion and inclusivity, allowing ourselves to be embraced by what is, whatever else, it's not a one-time thing. It's more than just one moment of belief, which is what I was taught growing up in the church. Just believe once, just accept, that's it, you're done. I have come to see it as a lifetime of listening to the inside-out invitations of Jesus, wrestling with his parables that wrestle me to the floor over and over, watching him love the unlovely from up close, finding him in the unexpected among people that I find unacceptable. Sometimes it's just sitting at the table with him, receiving bread from his hand. And what I've found after all these many years, and your mileage may differ, but what I have found is that it is not the arriving at all that matters. It's the coming. It's the journey. It's the turning and turning again and again. 
It's walking away from the otherwise. Away from the bragging that I did it my way and asking, seeking, knocking, reaching out with a hand that never stops reaching out into the mystery that reaches out to and for me. No matter where you go this week, no matter what, remember this, you carry precious cargo, so watch your step. And Holly and I will see you here next Sunday. Thank you.